0: You're listening to Keon Sports. This upcoming podcast is brought to you by SKN Biopharma. SKN Biopharma is a local business located in Avon, Ohio, who is now marketing and selling a revolutionary new hand sanitizer and surface protectant that is part of the solution to help fight this global epidemic. SKN Biopharma's hand sanitizer, which protects hands for up to eight hours, and their surface protectant, which protects services up to 90 days, are non-toxic, and utilize revolutionary technology to kill pathogens of all types longer than previously thought possible. Their business has absolutely exploded, and their products are available right now at www.sknmicrosure.com. Protect yourself, protect your family, and protect your business with the best solution available on the planet. Up next on today's Keon Sports Podcast, WWE legend, Al Snow. Sit tight. Put your feet up and grab something to cold drink. Up next, L Snow.
1: everybody want? Yeah. What does everybody need?
0: Welcome into the Keon Sports Podcast. A very special episode today with L Snow. You know him, you remember him, you love him. One of the most popular wrestlers of the Attitude Era and beyond. We're going to check in with him on everything. His days in ECW, Smoky Mountain, TNA. We're going to cover it all. Up next, Al Snow. Welcome into the show. This is Vince McKee, your host. If you want to be a sponsor of the show like SKN Biopharma, email me. CoachVin14 at Yahoo.com Over the last couple weeks We've had on some gigantic guests Terry Runnels, Tito Santana Scott Hudson, Ricky Morton Dr. Death Tom Pritchard Hector Guerrero As recently as yesterday, Nikita Koloff The guests get bigger and better as we go Today's guest, one of my personal Favorites, El Snow One of really, in my mind One of the most underrated wrestlers Of all time, especially of that Attitude Era Without any further ado, let's get into the phone now. Here is L. Snow on the hotline with us now. The SKN Biopharma hotline is L. Snow. L. Welcome to the show. Hello there. How are you? Oh, pretty good. You know, actually, just happy to be coming out of this uh, this pandemic era of being stuck in the house in the home studios. It's actually nice to go outside this weekend and get some home projects done. How have you been doing?
1: Doing well, Um, staying busy, trying to continue to uh, produce TV, and, um, you know, in spite of the lockdown and everything, and just really trying to, um, you know, um, be as creative as possible to try and keep the audience entertained, try to give them some kind of uh, respite from all the aggravation. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, we're in the same boat here, you know, on the show, uh, trying to think of daily topics to talk about sports-wise, so... It's uh, it, it's good today, and the really last couple of weeks talking with guys like you know Nikita Koloff and uh, Tom Pritchard, and and really kind of dipping into pro wrestling. It's been a nice distraction from not having you know the big three of baseball, basketball, and football. But like I said before we put you on, I am actually a personal fan of yours. I have followed your entire career, and we're I'm here in oh sure I'm here from Ohio too. I'm up here in Cleveland, so about yeah about four hours north of you. I want to say yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm, uh, I grew up in Lima, which was probably about three, three and a half hours uh, north, about west of you guys, in um, north, so just south of Toledo, north of Dayton.
0: Absolutely. So I wanted to ask you, too, as we get started here, why did you decide to pursue a career in professional wrestling? What got you involved and interested in, in trying it out? I, you know,
1: I don't know. I just knew that I had to do it. I made the decision when I was 14 years old that that was what I wanted to do. And, uh, and that was it. I mean, I, I, once I had made that decision, that was, that was, there was no going back. Um, um, and people ask and have asked, uh, you know, for years, why, why, what, what made you, and I'm like, I honestly, I can't tell you, I don't know. I wish I did, you know. Um, but, uh, I've never been able to you know, completely figure it out. Just it was a passion that I, of mine that I wanted to pursue, and and I've been blessed um, to be able to do what I wanted to do for a living for almost 40 years now. So, you know, I've been pretty pretty fortunate, pretty lucky.
0: Yeah, not too many people could say that. You know, it's a unique uh, breed and group of people who have been able to follow a passion and become as successful as you are. And you spent a lot of time on the indies early on. You know, this was long, long before the days of NXTs and, and, you know, these wrestling schools to the extreme that they are now. I mean, you know, back, you know, you obviously went to, you train, and I get that. But you spent a lot of time on the indies, and then you made a real quick stop. Your first stop in ECW, I haven't penciled in here. I remember it being around 1995. At that time, could you sense that ECW was building towards something bigger?
1: Um, you know, it was, it was a, uh, you could feel the vibe in the building and you could (laughs) tell that it was definitely a, you know, it was, it had an electricity about it and, you know, um, I don't think that anybody quite anticipated that it would, you know, continue to grow the way it did, but I mean, it did and, um. And that, that came all down to, you know, television access, which it always does. Um, and, the, you know, the more, the broader the television access, and the more the reach, the, the greater the audience grew. And, you know, because it was just, it was the right thing at the right time um, for the right reason, uh, which is what always happens. And, uh, you know, and, and um, Paul was very fortunate because he had a lot of talent that already had um, a lot of experience in polish uh, but not a lot of national exposure, and um, but then also but also had a following of people because of the tape trading and all that. Because this was long before the days of the internet, sure. um, you know that uh, were hungry to see these people, and um, and then for the rest of the audience, this was they, they were a brand new you know product. They were a brand new talent. They were somebody that they had never seen before. So. You know, it all it all worked uh, together. It was a perfect song.
0: Yeah, we're gonna bounce back to that in a second. But at that same time, you were also wrestling, and this is you know, I'll be honest with you, Al. This is the first time I saw you wrestle. You know, you were doing some spots with SMW, which people know as Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And you know, for me, a kid who grew up again here in Cleveland, um, my family did not have a lot of money. Uh, my dad worked full time. My mom was sick, and we did not have cable. So for us. I got my wrestling Saturday mornings, you know, whatever WWF would put out with superstars, sometimes Sunday mornings. But I got lucky because we had this station on our TV. And if you didn't have cable, you got this other station. And what would come in a couple times a week would be USWA wrestling and also Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And we just happened to have that luck where I got to have, you know, my wrestling fix in the middle of the week. And yeah. you know, SMW to me, Smoky Mountain and US USWA, I loved it. I miss it. I thought both promotions were very underrated. But, however, this this interview is not about me, it's about you. So, my question is this When you were with Smoky Mountain Wrestling, you did some tagging with a guy by the name of Glenn Jacobs. Well, everybody knows who Glenn Jacobs is. He went on to become mayor, but before that, you know, obviously Kane and Isaac Yankum. So, in SMW, you know, did did Glenn Jacobs stand out to you as the kind of guy with a lot of talent and potential? Or at that point, was it just too early to tell?
1: No, uh, Glenn always stood out. You know, I had met him. Before that, in St. Louis, and you know, Glenn stood out, and both for his talent, but also for his size and his look. You know, he he had all the tools to uh, you know be successful in professional wrestling, and uh, you know, and clearly he, he went on to do it. You know what I mean? He uh, yeah. he went on to do exactly that. He became very very successful. He's had a, a great career.
0: So, you get a shot, you know, with with the WWF and the, the first time around, and this is a tough question for me to ask, and I don't want you to take it personal, but I need to do my job professionally, so I have to ask you this. You can
1: ask any question you well, want. The only dumb question is the one
0: you don't ask. I, I'll take it then. <laughs> Thank you. So you get a shot with the WWF and in my humble, my humble opinion, they give you a couple no chance gimmicks, gimmicks that, I mean, how the hell are they going to get over? One, one of them was Shinobi, and another one was the very ill-fated Leaf Cassidy. You know, they basically ask you to come in and, and fill that Shawn Michaels role with Marty Jannetty. You know, I knew how talented you were. Like I said, I remember watching you in SMW and even a little bit in ECW. I knew your talent. And I'm like, why are they bringing this guy in to do this? For you personally, how frustrating was it? Because you weren't a rookie. You weren't a newbie. You were a guy who proved he could go.
1: Well, you know, first off, the, you know, the gimmicks... Or what you make of them, you know they're you know they're just trying to give you the most important aspect that a professional wrestler absolutely desperately needs, and that is a, a describable personality, um, something that people can relate to. Um, that's that's the quintessential, most valuable thing a professional wrestler can develop, and um, you know that was one of the things that had held me back for years was that I didn't have that. Um, you know, they, they couldn't, you couldn't turn to your friends and family and go, Hey, there's this guy, I'll snow. He's ABCDE." Um, you know, each time that I did develop that, um, I was, I was very successful, um, because it wasn't, you know, I was still, though unfortunately caught up in trying to sell what I did and not who I was and why I did it. Um, and that held me back. But I, like most wrestlers, I pointed the finger at everybody else but myself. Um, and with years and, you know, hindsight and maturity, I've been able to look back and realize that, you know, it was, it was my fault, not other people's faults. And uh, I was responsible for it. And, you know, with the Avatar gimmick, um, you know, I, knowing now what I know now, I could have done so much more with that and made it work. Or at least given a better, better run with it, um, with uh, you know the Leaf Cassidy gimmick, um, you know it was it was tough because rightfully so you know Marty I don't think had his heart in it from the start because you know I don't think it, it he felt that it was it was a good uh, you know respect for what he and Sean had done their legacy with that. And, and I can't agree, I can't disagree with him. Um, you know, but we, you know, so without him being totally in to it, you know, it just, it wasn't, it was ill-fated, you know, it wasn't going to, it had its run and then, you know, Marty left. And then I was, I was left again where was, and at the time was feeling very frustrated, but, um, you know, I think that that turning that frustration around when I went back to ECW on loan, um, that was what really helped to get me over because the whenever I would talk to the head on doing the vignettes and things, it was, that was me. That was my frustration. I was channeling that, uh, in those conversations and making sarga- sarcastic and smart ass remarks, you know, with the head and, uh, that was the way I could get that out. And I think that's why it connected so well is because people could tell that it was really who I was. I just turned the volume up on my frustration really loud.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more, and, and you kind of segued perfectly into my next question. And I was going to say pretty much exactly that. You caught the biggest break of your early career after leaving the WWF that first time and headed back to ECW for a bit. Which was now at that point on a much bigger scale, like you said, TV has a lot to do with it, you know, and, and, and oh, and, and pay per views and everything else, and the, and the access, you know. So um, I've always wondered this, and you know, I just ordered your book um, last night. I can't wait to read it. Uh, Self help life lessons. Oh God, I can't wait. Self help life lessons from the bizarre wrestling career of L. Snow. Guys, check it out. I'm gonna sink my teeth into it. Hopefully by Friday of this week. Um, so you, you, I'm sure you talk about it in that book, but. Can you tell the listeners, if you don't mind, how did you come up with the head gimmick? Who came up with it? And why do you think it got over so doggone well?
1: Well, I came up with it because at the time, um, you know, when I went back to ECW, um, I knew I I had to go back there. I had to go somewhere, uh, anywhere, and I had to get myself over, uh, make, you know, an audience want to see me, want to be me, want to be, you know, connect with me. Um, I had to. And uh, and I tell people all the time that you know Vince McMahon does not make you a star. Paul Heyman doesn't make you a star. You know, um, you do what you do, and then they they see something, and they capitalize on it. You know, they together with you they capitalize on it and promote it, and you both make money. And um, and that's how the entertainment business really works. <clears throat> so it's it's the onus. One hundred percent is on you to make yourself a star, Um, and I went there specifically to do that. I mean, you know, uh, you know, uh, Paul had no real um, plans for me when he brought me in. Um, That was it was kind of a you know because he had a working agreement that we were all aware of with WWE, anyways. So. you know, I went in there and I, I just felt like if you were the average person and you would see me as Leaf Cassidy, then, um, you know, anybody that was that happy had to be a little touched, a little crazy. <laughs> and, um, you know, as far as, uh, you know, the Al Snow gimmick, you know, you know, people who knew me of that had known that I'd been wrestling for, I think at that time, probably 14 or 14 years or something. And, you know, would know that somebody would be getting you know, at that point should be getting frustrated, um and would understand that and could relate to it and that, you know, um it getting so frustrated that like, you know, I'd have a nervous breakdown. So I started reading a book on abnormal psychology and, and um case studies and tried a bunch of different things to kinda demonstrate that I'd went crazy and none of it really worked. Um, just, it didn't communicate. It was very, it wasn't visual enough and people couldn't understand it. And, uh, and then one night I, I was, I'd worked with a great Sasuke and we were back in the back taking pictures for the Japanese magazines. And I saw a styrofoam head and, you know, I thought, well, you know, I remember this case study about a woman who had par- schizo you know, was a paranoid schizophrenic with transference disorder, meaning that the, the things that she heard voices from, she thought were crazy, not her. And I thought, well, that's perfect. You know, um, you know, I'll, I'll I'll talk to this head, and I'll treat it as if it's crazy, not me. Um, and uh, that, you know, i would used the um, styrofoam heads uh, quite often. Um, and then um, one night, um, Mikey Whitbreck and uh, Spike Dudley had found a uh, beautician's mannequin head that uh, the fans had brought for as a weapon for New Jack to use that night. And they gave it to me because uh, I knew I had to get an actual real looking head. And um, so they uh, gave it to me. And, um, that was, that was it. I was like, that's, this is fantastic. And I wrote, help me on the backwards. Cause the idea was that to me, the head was crying for help for people, somebody to save it from me. And I wrote, help me on my forehead, like the head had wrote it on me and I never saw it or realized it because I was internally crying for help. Right. So, uh, and then, you know, I just interacted with it and treated it as if it was a real person and, um, you know, and took my uh, frustrations out on it, and argued with it all the time, and and it worked. You know, and, and the reason it worked again was because um, it's you know uh, it's simply because it was it was really my voice. It was really it wasn't fake. It was it was quite real, and and you know they could tell, they could feel it. So, you know, that's the again, that's the uh, most important thing that any wrestler can do um every single uh you know wrestler that's ever been successful to any degree is a wrestler that you can describe to your friends and family in a sentence or less you know you can turn and you know to your friends that you know casually watch wrestling and just go hey man you gotta watch a show there's this guy he's a b c d e and you know in that that description you've you know, you've caught their interest. They can relate to who they are. They understand what they're about, what they'll do to win, what they'll do not to lose, the whole nine yards. And, you know, developing that that character, that gimmick, that persona is what uh, allowed me to finally have, you know, some success. And it was just unfortunate, you know, that, uh, you know, I was still, again, I was focused on the wrong things that I really, I could have capitalized that much more on the opportunities that were given to me if I had just um, focused on the right things, so.
0: Well, if I could take off my, uh, you know, broadcast journalist hat for a second and put my fan hat back on for a minute, I just got to tell you, I thought, to me personally, that was one of the greatest gimmicks. I was about, not to make you feel old, but I want to say I was maybe 14 or 15 at the time, and uh, I just thought the whole gimmick was amazing. I thought, man, this guy gets it, you know. And it just was. And like you said, there's so much more into it, as you just explained. The the, the, um, the vision behind it, really, the the reasoning behind it, and the psychologically behind it, that is really the thing to me that jumps out the most as a writer. I mean, it's just, it's pure genius. And I, I have to tell you that, you know, not only as a journalist, but as a fan. So you finally get a chance now. You come back to the WWF you know, in the early summer of 98, and they're in their boom period now. I mean, they have, Attitude Area is off and running. They've hit the ground. And there was two matches that you had. You had a bunch of matches. But there were two matches to me that stuck out and, and, again, told me as a fan, said, you know what, not only is this guy athletic, he's also intelligent. He's intelligent as hell because there's there's two matches that you had, to me, that, again, the ring psychology of these were tremendous. And, and here they are. And We'll, we'll see, you know... How much you could talk about each one because i would love to know what what went on behind the scenes to plan these out the first one okay and these are both in 99 the the winter and summer of 1999 the first one is a falls count anywhere match with hardcore holly at saint valentine's day massacre which ended up near the river okay in the middle of the winter time all the way out to the river an amazing amazing match the second was later that year during the summer at SummerSlam, which I want to say was in Minnesota that year, Minneapolis, against the Big Boss Man, another Falls Count Anywhere match that ends up in a sports bar across the street. I thought both of those matches were done extremely well. Can you tell us a little bit about... Oh, you're welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about the ring psychology of that, the planning behind it, and how much freedom you had with both of your opponents to, to plan those out?
1: Um, well, what happened... It kind time Happened because we started doing those hardcore matches for the hardcore title, and then one the very first night that Road Dogg and I uh, we had wrestled um, in Worcester, Massachusetts, and it was that was in I think it was in December of that year. I don't know what year it was, but um, and we they always let you know they just would send an agent with me, and the agent would just follow me around, and I would just plan it all out uh, in my head. Um, you know, and I would try to do things that I thought looked organic, um, and place things that looked like they made sense being there, as opposed to us just walking out with items. Um, I thought it made it seem more like a real fight and brawl, um, if we just happened to find stuff along the way. Um, so I would plan our route and, you know, I'd communicate that to the agent who communicated to the truck. Um, but the first night in Worcester, by ac- it was kind of by accident, I think. I mean, if I remember correctly, I can't, I'm not sure. But we didn't plan on going outside, I don't think. But we ended up going through the fire door, setting off the fire alarm. Oh, yeah. and, uh, and then, you know, that ended out in the snow. Yeah. Um, and then after that, it just seemed like that was the M.O. Like, that's what they wanted. They, you know, they wanted just um, crazy, go-anywhere type of brawls. Uh, that would start in the ring and sometimes end, you know, God knows where. So um, I would get to TV and they'd say, okay, you're wrestling so-and-so tonight and, you know, go to it. And I would just go off in the afternoon and I'd start, you know, figuring things out and trying to uh, uh, escalate uh, things. Because you always want to start, you know, you always have to start with your once upon a time with the story and then let it build to a, a culmination and 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 have those events get bigger and bigger and bigger, um, you know, as you go. And uh, you know, um, that was the case with you know uh, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. I was out in the afternoon. It was February. and It was an afternoon, and at the time it was warm. You know, it was down in Memphis. And it was warm out. I was walking around without a jacket. And I thought, oh, that's you know. And I saw the Mississippi River, and I was like, <laughs> oh why don't we just we'll fight out here and you know I I put luckily I threw a old tire that was sitting by the bank I threw it into the water right near the shore I think saved my life because once we got in the water I didn't one I didn't realize just how cold it was And it took my breath away. And two, how deep it was and how fast it was moving. Um, I mean, because one of us could have drowned. And then Bob gets so worked up, and gets in the zone. I mean, he kept dunking my head under the water and pulling me back up and dunking me under the water. He was going to drown me. So I had to literally grab a hold of the tire and fight for my life to get away from him. Um, You know, and people still to this day remember that uh, match. Um, and the same goes, you know, with boss man and road dog and, you know, we, uh, you know, we were allowed to fight across the street and into the bar and, um, you know, I just, I laid it out and, you know, put things where I thought they organically would be and would look like he just naturally fit and, you know, and then build up to, uh, you know, that, that moment, that culmination of where things just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then, you know, you take it home. So um, they were a lot of fun. I mean, they hurt. I mean, it was a lot of stuff was when now when I look back, I'm like, boy, that was (laughs) kind of (laughs) dumb. You know, one or one or both of us could get hurt a lot. And uh, luckily, we, you know, we were able to get banged up and beat up a lot, but uh, we didn't get injured. So, you know, it was uh, I was very fortunate to uh, have that run.
0: Okay, so I'm not going to ask you to peel back kayfabe too much on this, and I'm not going to ask any insider secrets, but something I'm dying to know from that boss man match that I have watched, I, no joke, man, at least probably 75 times. My question to this is this How much prep time does, I mean, like legally, does the WWE have to give these establishments to let them know? And like the people in the bar, like, they would have to know before they go in there and I guess the reason why I'm asking this is and I'm telling fans fans just put a release up
1: on the door saying that if you enter this establishment that your likeness will be filmed you know and that's it
0: wow okay I've always
1: you can't tell people ahead of time stuff because if you do then it ruins the reactions and the responses and things like that you know you can't you can't do
0: that that's incredible (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't mean to laugh. I'm sorry. I just think that's incredible. That's okay. incredible because there's a spot in during your match where this guy, you know, this random fan jumps in front of the camera and you see, you know, Pitbull, one of the Pitbull's uh, security guards just grab him and he yank his ass out of there so quick. And I'm like, man, and I'm thinking, like, how stupid is this guy? Like, he's lucky he didn't get tackled. Or one of you guys could have hit him.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and luckily, I mean, for us, nobody got directly involved at any point in time. If they had, I mean, we'd have just shut them down. But, you know, and that would have just added to the match. So, yeah. you know, to the chaos of the match. That was what they wanted, was they wanted this? these matches that just seemed like they were absolute anarchy and, and chaos.
0: Well, they were. And like, and like I said, I, I think it, it's a true testament to your abilities, um, your intelligence uh, of ring reasoning and all of it. Because, you know, for you to have two um, outlandish gimmick matches like that, and both and both of them be as well done as they were, just, again, I take my hat off to you. I got a few questions left, uh, a few questions left on my own, and then a couple uh, silly fan ones here at the end, but sure. mm-hmm. here's the other thing, too, that I thought was incredible about your career, and I it meant a lot to me as a fan of yours that you had this kind of respect. How honored were you to be chosen to be a judge of the original Tough Enough series?
1: Uh, very much so. I, you know... Um I uh, still, to this day, I'm very grateful for it. I think it was one of the most enjoyable uh, things that I've done in wrestling, and you know, uh, I was thrilled to be a part of it. Um, you know, somebody posted, uh, you know, uh, from Tough Enough Three where Matt Capitelli went out and you know stole all the tires off my car <laughs> to rib me back. You know, um, you know, it was it was such an awesome experience to get me be with those kids and uh, you know. Be a part of uh, helping to develop them and and get them give them an opportunity to pursue their dreams and you know um, and develop those relationships. It was it was great. I mean I you know I was like I said it's one of the things I'm probably the most proud of uh, you know with my career and uh, and it gave me the most exposure you know um, you know uh, I was pretty much a household name for quite a while you know thanks to MTV and because uh, I you know reached. An even broader audience than than just with wrestling
0: yeah no not about it and you know I, again i'll say as a fan at the time and, and obviously today as well but you know i remember watching that and like you you became invested in the coaches and you became invested in the competitors you know it got to the point at the very end when, when maven was chosen um you know over uh, i think i want to say like Chris, christopher nowinski and josh matthews i believe and like I remember, like crying, like like being like ridiculously emotional, and be like, "Why the hell am I crying? This is a reality show." But then it hit me, like, "Hey, you know, th- these guys have worked their tails off to train these young kids, and now these young kids have taken it this seriously. This is not a joke. This is not some BS reality show. This is real life." And yeah. you know, and to me, I think really that's why it hit home so hard. And I wanted to ask you too, um, you know, and kind of this is really kind of radical left turn from the, the tough enough, but. You know, like you said, speaking of real emotions and and really getting behind the characters and the gimmicks and the performers, you know, that was to me, that was why the original ECW was so beloved by so many. Why do you think, you know, in the summer, I want to say the summer of 2006, when the WWE tried to bring it back under their brand, why did they have to water it down so badly and why do you think it failed so badly?
1: The reason they had to water it down was because you know Vince is always trying to market to a general audience. <clears throat> the problem, the success of ECW and also its downfall, was that it was it was a very niche product. It was marketed to a niche audience, and you can't survive doing that. You you know you've got to try to. Um, it's no different. Them making a comic book movie. Um, there is a large portion of the audience that have read these comic books, have know the, the origin stories, they know the characters, they know the backstory, they get it. Um, but if you make a movie that's only going to appeal to just them, then you're not going to make the money back that it takes to make the movie, and you're not going to make a profit. I mean, let's face it, that's why they're doing it. You know, as they want to make a profit. Um, that's called business. Uh, but if you make a movie that, you know, you walk that line that appeals to the diehard comic book fan that knows these characters stays true to it with just enough of a spin to where an audience, a general audience go, huh, I get it. All right. Now I understand why this guy's a hero and why I want to cheer for him. And now how, how I connect with him and why I want to be like him. That's the most important thing. Then, now you have a product that will make money. And, and at the end of the day, that's what it's called the wrestling business for a reason. Because you're trying to market an, to an audience to in, in capture them and capture their emotions to motivate them to want to pay to see the performances on a continuous basis that then motivate them to now want to also buy the merchandise and all of that that goes along with it so that you really can be a profitable business. That's, that's ultimately at the end of the day. And, um, that's why it's so important that as a wrestler, you know, you sell who you are, and why you're doing it because it's the only two things that the audience really wants to invest in and believe in. They don't want to invest or believe in what you do. They want to invest in who you are and why you're doing it. You know, they want to really truly believe that you are the person that you've sold them, that, you know, they, people want to really believe that I'm crazy, Hmm. that I, you know, legit legitimately was insane. you know, and before tough enough, they all, everybody believed it. Um, they quite honestly thought that I was crazy, you know, and, and that's why, you know, I try to explain that kayfabe is not about protecting the business. Um, it has nothing to do with it. Uh, you know, kayfabe was, was one, was just a signal word that you would mention nonchalantly in a, in, a, in a sentence to let people know that there were people around that you didn't want to make aware of what was going on. Um, simple as that it's no different than like a magic show you know hey we need to make sure we don't show how the trick's done because otherwise they won't pay to see it Um, you know but KFAB was really a respect uh, for yourself um, for what you did and for your audience so that they never felt like they paid to get something that they didn't get um, which was who you were so to that end like when I was really over with the head um, you know, I'd go to dinner with it. And, you know, I'd go to dinner with them. I would take them, you know, into restaurants and get a table for us and sit there and talk to them in front of the public and, you know, order two meals and drinks and, you know, <laughs> you know, in breakfast, the same thing, go to a gym, you know, uh, because if, if I legitimately was like that, well, that's what I would do, you know. And, um, and you know, the main reason I did it was, and it was not easy. It was a lot of, you know, there were a lot of uncomfortable moments, <laughs> like, well, you know, the main reason I did it was because if you and your family were out and you saw me talking to that ad, you know, having dinner and then flipped to the channels and saw me again, you know, you were like, Hey, there's that guy, he, he look at me, he's really crazy. And then if you believe in who I am, you believe in anything I do, it's all real to you now. You know, because you're, you're completely convinced that I am who I am. So now me fighting across the street and into a bar makes complete sense. Me wrestling myself is completely normal, you know? And because of the fact that being insane gave me creatively a freedom that no one else had. You know, I could do things and get away with it and be entertaining. I wasn't, wasn't a comedy wrestler like people think. All I was was just an entertaining wrestler. That was insane. That was it.
0: That's incredible. I never heard that story about the the two breakfasts, and that gives me a chance real quick to, to pitch your book again, because someone tells me stories like that are going to be in this book galore. Guys, go check it out. I ordered mine last night on Amazon, Self-Help, Life Lessons from the Bizarre Wrestling Career of Al Snow. We have two professional questions left for you, and then the two fan questions. Um, so as you probably could already tell, you know some, some of the favorite parts of, my, of your career to me were the coaching aspects of it all. And you were in TNA for a long time. I mean, almost a decade you were there. And to me, again, the part that jumped out the most wasn't really anything you, know, you did wrestler-wise as much as coach-wise. So my personal favorite part of your entire TNA run was when you were a part of the gut check segment. How, legit, how legitimate was that? And did you have actual say if, if that guy was going to come under contract or was all that decided beforehand?
1: Um, it was actually quite legitimate. Uh, the ideal behind it was to give people who had been wrestling an opportunity to have a national stage. And I produced a lot of that because I would have them, you know, the talent would submit, um, uh, um, uh, You know, a a video and pictures, and I would go through and, you know, pick somebody who had a really good story, somebody had a really good backstory, uh, because it was important. Because again, we're not selling what we do, it's important that we're selling who and why, and I need to, in in that 10-minute amount of time, capture you as the audience with this person's story and make you care whether or not they actually win a contract or not, Um, or make you we hope they don't, you know, I've got to encapsulate all that in a very short amount of time. So it was very important to, you know, find people that had some kind of story, you know, and had spent years and had never really gotten a national opportunity. And, you know, um, and the thing was, you guys can, you can go back and watch the tapes and you will watch my face because we would sit down and we'd all discuss. And then we'd, you know, and the idea was that it was supposed to be a very, you know, very few people would get a, an actual contract because if you gave out too many, it would it would seem like it was too easy. Um, but the problem was a lot of things just didn't go to plan. So like even the very first one where we had Alex Silva who came in mm-hmm. um, that I had met in OVW, had a ton of talent, looked great looking kid. Ric Flair was going to be the first judge myself, Bruce Pritchard, and Ric Flair. Mm-hmm. Ric Flair all day. Now, I'm going to say no. It's nope, nope, nope. He was dead set against this kid getting a contract because he just didn't think it was the right way to do it for whatever reason. He was being a dick and was just, nope, 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 no. Nope. So, kid wrestles the match, uh, you know, and we agreed, you know, because you had to have two, you had to have a minimum of two yeses to get a contract right so you know bruce was going to say no i was going to say yes and then rick no doubt i'm not going to say i'm not i'm just going to say no um which he did and then you had an opportunity to do a promo and that was your 30 seconds to last each effort it was like a kick out yeah was what it was so you know alex cuts this promo and rick goes kid you won me over it's a yes, and both Bruce and I looked at each other like, what? So the, the kid gets a contract, you know, because he took the opportunity and made the most of it and convinced Flair with that homo to say yes, and it did not go to according to plan. Um, Joey Ryan, you know, that Hall that literally was going to again. Good. No, yes, no, uh, two no's, and he, you know, Taz was involved, you know, Taz tried to, you know, steal the spotlight a little bit, try to get himself over and Joey didn't back down. So that literally Joey created his own opportunity. He he got himself over to the point where Bischoff that inspired Bischoff and literally get, got him a spot on the roster, you know, and, and that, those are prime examples of how, you know, you are put in that ring and then it's up to you to make the most of that opportunity when you're in there. And, um, you know, another good example, too, Candace Candice Uh, oh, You know, Joey, had, had, at the time, I think, was in a relationship with her or something. He contacted me. Hey, you know, she'd like to get on a gut check. I go, okay, have her send me pictures. And let me tell you this, in 38 years, this is the only person who has ever has asked for advice and then actually went and did it. Only person. Maybe there's maybe one other one. But the number is very low. Okay? Mm-hmm. Uh she sends in her pictures, sends in a backstory, and calls me. You know, what do you think? And I said, I have to be honest with you. I said, the pictures, you just look like some, you know, you don't look like a star. You look like some lowly indie girl. I said, you know, you're, you're an attractive girl, but you don't look glamorous. You don't look like a star. Um, and I said, you, and your backstory is just dull. I said, I can't take this to Eric and Bruce and pitch you being on TV and have them agree that you're going to get the chance. I said, I need you to send me different photos where you really look glamorous and look like a star. And I said, and, and, uh, and I need a better backstory. I need, you know, emotion, um, from you. So she, uh, she literally the very next day sent me, I had a photo shoot and sent me these professional photos that she had done. She looked amazing. Um, she looked like a different person, you know. I said, Make sure you get really, you know, get different gear. Um, you know, look like a star, carry yourself like a star. Gave me a whole different backstory. I took it to Bruce and Eric. They're like, Yeah, let's put it on TV, you know. And she got that opportunity, but the only reason she did was because she took, you know, asked advice and then went out and did it, you know. She actually went and did it. And I can't tell you the number of people that will go, hey, how can I do this, or how can I make it, or, you know, what's it going to take to succeed? And then I'm, I'm very direct. Um, people will tell you, I'm very direct. And I'm very blunt. Um, um, you know, and uh, I'm very honest. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't BS people. And uh, a lot of people don't like to hear what I have to say. Um, then I tell people all the time that if you don't like it, don't ask me. Because I'm fine with, you know, you. I don't judge people. You go do whatever you want to do. But if you ask me my, uh, my advice, uh, I, and I tell you my opinion, don't be offended. You know, um, because I'm actually, because if I actually give it to you, or if I speak to you, it's because I care. Because if I didn't care, I'd be completely apathetic. And, you know, I just let, let you stand there and flounder. You know, it wouldn't bother me. But um, if I do go out of my way to, to do it, it's not because I don't like you and I'm saying because I'm telling you something you don't hear. You know, that's why I tell people I am 100% responsible for what I say, but I am in no way, shape, or form responsible for what you comprehend or understand.
0: Yeah, I mean, on a, on a, two real quick things. One, on a very small scale, I know 100% what you're talking about. I've, um, in my life, Okay, I've been blessed. I've been able to write nine books. So I have nine published books. You go to the bookstore, they're going to be on the shelf. And, you know, you know, you you wrote a book yourself. You know how hard that is and what it takes to get it done. And, you know, unlike you, you know, I I didn't have any kind of celebrity background when I started doing this. So, you know, to get a book published, it's, I mean, it's damn hard. Okay, so in, in the course... In the course of, let's say, the last decade or whatnot since my first book was published, I've had dozens, no do- no joke, you know, like mankind's dozens and dozens of fans. I've had dozens of people ask me, hey, tell me how to get a book published. What do I need to do? And I will sit with them. I will give them a full chart, every step it takes, from A to Z, how hard it is. And like you said, I'm 100% blunt because I'm, I'm not going to give anybody any kind of false hope. They need to know what it takes. And I've done this now. Dozens of people... Nobody's followed up on it. Nobody, and it, you do. You think to yourself, here I am. You know, I'm taking this time to, to explain to somebody something how you do something, and then they don't. I don't know if people want to look for the easy way out or what, but it is crazy. You know, and it, it, like I said, it, it, I guess it does take a special person to follow through on something. Number two, interesting about Candice Lerae. One of the first big breaks I got in my own career was interviewing Johnny Gargano, who who is now her husband because he wrestled indie here in Cleveland, Ohio. I knew that. I knew that kid had it years ago. So, really cool to see how they both turned out. My last professional question for you, and then we got the two fan ones here. But really, my the one I came up with, my last one here. Why did you decide to be a part of and then purchase Ohio Valley Wrestling?
1: Um. Well, that's a, it's going to take a couple seconds to explain that. Okay. Um, <laughs> um. When I, it, it all kind of just. Fell together um, to purchase o- OVW. Um, I had no intentions. Uh, I wasn't expecting to do it in any you know any manner. Um, it literally just came out of nowhere. Um, I had. I got frustrated because and I had spent a lot of time working on, the, you know, working on the weekends, you know, going around, you know, doing independent shows. Sure. And and it bothered me a lot um, that, you know, I would see a lot of people and not just from an aesthetic standpoint. And, you know, please understand it again. I'm responsible for what I say. Uh, this is an aesthetic business. It is a, you know, cosmetic business. Mm-hmm. But but, you know, you don't have to look like a bodybuilder. I've never have. Um, but I've looked like I'm a professional athlete who makes his living in a competitive combat situation. You know, that's what we're selling. Um, and and I've always been in ring condition out of respect for myself and my opponent. And, and going around the independents, there are... a multitude of people that are in no way shape or form one properly trained in any manner Um, and two they are in no way in shape or form in ring condition and and it's it's dangerous because ultimately at the end of the day when you go in that ring there is a chance there are odds that you are going to suffer an injury or a life-altering injury or you can die that's that's the truth, and 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 the rate of people that are dying because of accidents that are happening within the ring over the last few years is growing exponentially. Um, just carelessness and, and and again lack of commissioning and proper training. And um, that that summer, a young man out in Oklahoma City, which of course Oklahoma is a state that is governed by a wrestling commission. Um, they. Uh, you know, he was on a wrestling show, poorly trained, with somebody else poorly trained, in poor shape, uh, took a spine buster, cracked the back of his head, had edema, brain swelling, I was in a coma for several days, and then they had to pull the plug, kid died. So I, you know, my wife is a licensed masseuse. So in any state in the union, if you want to be a... Licensed masseuse, or if you want to be a licensed beautician or a licensed barber, or you want to be a uh, licensed mortician, you have to go to a state accredited school. You have to be taught by a state accredited trainer. You have to f- complete a certain number of state required hours. <clears throat> and then you have to complete a certain number of residency hours of, of actual on the job training, supervised. And then before you can even pay to take a test, to get a license as that vocation is as, as a professional wrestler in every state that, that a commission is governed. Um, all you have to do is, uh, pay, you know, pay some money, uh, and, uh, get a physical sports physical and, uh, you're a licensed professional wrestler. I find it insulting. I find it absurd. Um, you know, back in the day, When I was broke into the business, we we monitored and policed ourselves. And so few people were willing to train you because they were held accountable for who they brought into the business. The heat would go on them. Mm -hmm. But now there is such a proliferation of, of training schools out there. That, that is what's led to the very degradation of the very art and the business of professional wrestling. That anybody can just simply walk in and be free to, to be a part of it and be indoctrinated into the wrestling business and then call themselves a professional, which they are no way, shape, or form anything close to it. Um, and I find that insulting. So I went, I went first to the Maryland State Commission. They just blew me off. I spoke to the Oklahoma City Commission. They blew me off because ultimately, at the end of the day, they, they want the money. They want the license money. And if they do institute standards, then that's going to uh, limit the number of people that are going to apply, which then means that they don't get as much. But what they don't see is they just see the short-term picture. They don't see the long-term picture, which is that if you create those standards, then you raise the bar, you raise the level of the people that now enter into it, and then the performances uh, on the shows are that much better, which now gives an audience what they really paid to see, which now increases the profit for the promoters that allows them to run more shows more frequently um, because they have larger audiences, um, which increase the tax revenue that, of course, the promoters have to pay on every show. Um, And ultimately, it it all comes around. But that short-term hit they don't want to take. And, um, I went and addressed the, uh, board of the Kentucky wrestling, uh, boxing commission, uh, personally, directly, um, physically. And, uh, that was when I met my best friend and business partner, Chad Miller. He was at the time, he was the executive director of the, uh, Kentucky boxing wrestling commission. Uh, we met, we got to speaking. Uh, one thing led to another, had a conversation with Danny Davis, who had, uh, owned and operated, uh, OVW and created it. Sure. And, um, he was ready to retire and Chad resigned from, uh, being the executive director of the boxing wrestling commission. Um, we went in together and, um, we bought OVW and, and it's been a two year process of, um, you know, we've become the only, the only world, the world's only state accredited trade school by the, Office of Proprietary Education in Kentucky. They oversee uh, all the trade schools, all the secondary education colleges, universities. That thing, um, and and so we have to have accredited uh, trainers. We have to have you know uh, coursework hours. We so when you know when people come here, I mean they can just train to be a wrestler if they want, but because as a, as a trade school, we teach them not only how to be a wrestler. Um, I thought it was very important to give them skills that that when, not if, their career in the ring ends, that if through an injury or just attrition, um, they would have skills that they could still be an asset somewhere. For some company, like, you know, for me, I've been able to transition and become a trainer and, you know, a producer um, through my experience, you know, and also a commentator. Well, you know, not everybody does that. And but if you come and you actually attend a trade school where you can learn lighting, cameras, sound, production, uh, you know, et cetera and uh, you get that experience along with the training in the ring. Not only are you a better performer in the ring because you now understand and relate and know what they're looking for, um, to better perform. But you know, now you have skills that if you get hurt, you can pick up a camera, you can produce vignettes, you can help produce, you know, segments on the show. You can write, you know, how to format a television show, um, things of that nature. Uh, You can, you know, live event management, uh, social media management, uh, financial management. Um, We teach all of that uh, to give these people uh, skills over and above just being a a professional wrestler. They can now be in entertainment or broadcasting. And, um, you know, two prime examples of that work made it, made me realize that it works and it's valuable. Uh, Jesse Whitney, who's Tommaso Ciampa's wife, both of them wonderful people. Mm -hmm. Um, She was a, a contestant on Tough Enough 2. She got cut. She came back in Tough Enough 3 as an intern for MTV, she ended up getting hired by WWE as a backstage producer. Spent several years there, learning her skills and her, and all of that, got experience, and then became a television producer for you know major networks all around the world, and had a great career. And um, and then James Long, uh, kid who came here as uh, wrestled as Paradise years ago, as part of OVW, taught himself production, lighting, sound, editing. Um, incredibly talented. Uh, You know, I ended up helping him get hired by uh, Impact Wrestling, TNA, and he was part of their production crew for a couple, several years. Um, They loved him. And then he got hired by WWE, um, and he's now uh, a major producer uh, for their television uh, with NXT, you know, and has a whole brand new career, you know, And, and is that much better as a producer of wrestling because he was in the ring and knows what the feel and the sense and what you're selling is. So... You know it can be done, and um, and and it was. It's my, uh, my. You know, I, it's my effort. I want to raise the bar. I want to make wrestling better. I want to make it. You know, uh, and I don't want to make it easy for people to get in, um, because I, I firmly believe that if you want a life that others don't live, you have to be willing to do things that others don't do, and if you're not, then don't. Don't fool yourself and don't insult the very business that you aspire to get into. You know, oh, I'll just play wrestler. You know, and I listen, I, I, I get people have different situations and, you know, you want, you can only pursue it on the weekends or whatever. I bet that's no insult, but you're going to be a, an actual professional. You're going to look the part, you're going to carry yourself as the part, and you're going to be able to physically go in that ring and be able to perform at a level that you can protect yourself and your opponent. Simple as that. And if that's not what you want to actually carry yourself with pride and don't bother doing it you know it, it, it's that simple you know you'll find somebody who's willing to take your money and you you know and's and got some little ring set up in a you know in a, a barn or in a you know a, a sword unit or something they'll be glad to show you you know hey this is how you protect yourself when you land and fall and here's a couple holes and here's how you hit the ropes and Hey, here's what you th- what we think is a high spot. Now, there you go. Take off, man. Go do your thing. You know, um, and, and you may get hurt. You know, um, you may not. Uh, you may end up hurting somebody. You may not. But you're not going to be an asset to the wrestling business. You're, you're going to continue to degrade the very thing that you claim you love to do. And if you don't want to really invest time, money, and effort in yourself, then don't waste your time, money, and effort, or someone else's, or more importantly, the most important person is do not waste the time, money, and effort of the audience that paid to see you. Do not insult them.
0: Wow. (laughs) That's the most incredible thing. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I don't even, I'm I'm speechless. Everything you just said is 100% accurate. As someone who has... Followed the business for thirty years, somebody who's in broadcasting now, guys, please listen to everything El just said, rewind it, listen to it twice. every word that just came out of his mouth is hundred percent accurate to a to an extreme and, and um, yeah I mean I'm not even gonna try to repeat what you said because again, you know anybody I don't care if it's professional wrestling or what your profession is everything he just said, all those morals, all those principles, all those values go into anything if you want to be successful at life 110 percent. so
1: if you want something bad enough you'll find a way if you don't you'll find an excuse It's it's that simple don't lie to yourself you know we all lie to everybody every day it's just part of life i mean we do um you're not a saint everyone lies to everyone every day but the one person you should never lie to is you just be brutally honest. What are your motivations? What is the reason you really want to do this, or whatever it is you want to do, or, or interact with, or behave with? Just be honest with yourself. Don't lie. Just this is who I am, and this is what I want to do, and this is when I get out of it. You know, simple as that. And then, and then realize that if it's not for you, then don't do it. You know, don't blame other people. Don't point the finger because the one person, the only person you can control, because the biggest myth that everyone has told throughout their whole life, and really it's manifesting itself today in society, is that so-and-so makes you feel something. No one makes you feel anything, okay? Okay. No one gives you emotions. People do actions, and then your interpretation of their actions make you feel things. And you can't control other people. The only person you can control is you. Simple as that. So stop pointing the finger at everybody else and start pointing it at yourself and take control of yourself so you can take control of your life and live the life you want to live instead of always being a victim to everyone else's actions.
0: Yeah, um, just incredible. They need to book you to... Talk at high school, seriously, man. <laughs> they need, I'm, I'm pumped up. I'm ready to run through a wall after this conversation. They, uh, they, they need to put you on high school graduations and college graduations. Young kids, seriously, man. Young kids need to hear this. I've been, I'm 38 years old, and I've been preaching this for years. And it's, it, again, until you do it yourself and believe in yourself and bust your ass and stop looking for, you know, a break or a shortcut or a handout. Bust your ass. That's when you're gonna find out what you're really made of. So this has been a great interview. We have um, the two fan questions left. They're both really short, kind of silly, but um, definitely awesome. This is amazing. Thank you. Um, no, thank you. So two fan questions here. Um, yeah. And the first one I, first one was actually something I would have asked anyways, even if the fans didn't ask it, because I'm dying to know. So you you touched on it a lot just now about being in physical ring shape. But yeah. we've seen pictures of you. We've seen videos of you since you've retired from you know WWE and TNA your physical presence you you know the the way they worded was how'd you get to be so jacked i mean that, that that's their words I, I don't think i
1: am but i appreciate the fact that they think i am <laughs> um uh you know i just here's what i did for a lot of years i trained the wrong way because when i i first broke into wrestling and everything i mean i nobody you know, I didn't have anybody to work out with. I didn't nobody to direct me. So I learned a lot, you know, uh, I was all self-taught. And, you know, I've used every type of, I was a big, you know, buy muscle and fitness magazines and bodybuilding magazines. And, you know, um, I've done every type of routine there is, just you name it. And um, what, what it was is that uh, I stumbled upon a website um, it was called the golden age of strong men. Um, it was an awesome website. They've changed it. You can't download, uh, the training manuals. They, they, this website was a, uh, training, This it was where these strong men from the late 1800s and professional wrestlers from the late 1800s and early 1900s on, um, they all made training manuals and, um, you know, they uh, published them years, ago, decades, century, a century ago now. Um, and um, I started looking at pictures of some of these guys. And one of them, if people want to Google it, is look up George Hackenschmidt. Oh, yeah. He's a professional wrestler. Yep. Um, the guy was incredibly, sh- incredible shape. And, you know, uh, I was like, holy cow. Like this was during the time they didn't even know what calories were, let alone protein or carbs, you know, and they didn't have steroids, you know, uh, at that time. Um, and I'm like, how did this guy become so developed? And I I was, I started reading and I started reading, uh, all these training manuals and, um, I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to start to train like they do. And, and I did several years, quite a few years ago. And and that's what I've been doing ever since is I've just been, you know, training like that. Um, a a lot of, most of the stuff I do is compound movements, uh, very little because I'm not, you know, I've trained different than a bodybuilder will because the bodybuilder is training to sculpt themselves and literally chisel themselves into a particular look. I'm now training myself just, you know, for um for the, you know, for the uh, you know, the physical ability. Um and the biggest thing that made the difference was doing those compound movements and and working my legs through squats and deadlifts and and, and compound movements using my legs because the the base thing I took away was the they said that, you know, in one of the books it said if you several of them said If you can only train, you know, one or two days a week, train your legs, train your back, and train your hands. Those were the three most important things to train. And the more I trained my legs, um, the more the rest of me started to develop. And uh, it was just, you know... It was, it was, it's been been a lot of, it's, I've, I've trained since I was 16 and started getting bored with it and same routine. And and now it's, it's fun because it's always a challenge and the, you know, uh, uh, different techniques and I'm always finding, you know, Old equipment that they, you know, the old, the old strongmen used to use. That thought, like God, this thing looks weird because I'll carry stuff into a gym a lot of times, and you know, and I look like I'm doing a circus act because you know. I <laughs> I train with you know maces that I have and ham. The big, I have a 50 pound sledge and a, I've got a 65 pound mace and a 20 pound mace and I've got Indian heavy. I've got all uh, light Indian clubs and then I've got heavy clubs um, wow. that I train with and you know I have. I, people say how much do you bench? I'm like I don't know. I haven't done a bench press in probably 10 years. I don't you know whatever amount of time I've been doing this because. Mm-hmm. I just do push-ups, and if I do any kind of presses, you know, um, I just use dumbbells and, and on a bench. That's it, because back in the day, that was all they had. You know, they didn't. You know, they didn't have benches, so sure. you know, I'll I'll do them on the floor. Um, if I do anything, I, you know, and in real life, I mean, there's how many opportunities do you have to just lay flat and then push up, you know, unless you're underneath a car changing oil and it drops on you? Yeah. You know, that's, <laughs> uh, it's not a real functional, <laughs> functional move. So, you know, I, I just trained functionally and, um, it's really made a big difference. So, and started to watch what I eat and all that too. That mean, that makes, makes a big difference too, you know.
0: Yeah. So, In an interview of all intelligent questions, had to save the silliest, stupidest one for last. This has been great, though. Thank you so much. Um, And this is an (laughs) this is a question I did not come up with. I just want that's a disclaimer here. Um, But this is again, man. Thank you so much. Last question here um, from uh, one of our fans. Uh, This is so so silly. Was Pepper really your dog?
1: Um, no, thank God. Um, Pepper, uh, with that whole storyline, um, uh, when they first came to me with it, I insisted, and in, and quite honestly, and I've told this story several times, um, I insisted that we have trained animals. When they right out of the gate, when Vince Russo first came to have the conversation with me, I'm like, I'm cool with it. Um, I'm fine with it. But you need to give me a trained animal. Because if you don't give me a trained animal, I don't know how I'm going to interact with it. So they ended up uh, calling a veterinarian clinic in Detroit and uh, got a list of owners of chihuahuas. And uh, then Pepper showed up. And I was like, okay, listen, I'll make this work. But I'm, I'm telling you, when we get to the end of the line, when we get to the culmination where we do the kennel and hell from hell match, you need... And I can't emphasize this enough. We need trained animals all from the same training center, all where you can, you know, you've seen trainers where they do verbal commands and these dogs just do exactly. I said, so that where the the trainers can stand outside the, the cage and literally tell these dogs, okay, attack, you know what I mean? We need this. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So week after week, every week at TV, hey, how's that coming? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I get to Charlotte, North Carolina the day of, and I walk in, and I notice there's like 10 dogs with 10 different owners. And I'm like, oh, shit. Yep. What the hell is going on? And I, you know, come out, I talk to them, and, and it turns out that one dog had some obedience training. So you've literally made the crux of the story all about these animals, which even in porn, people know you don't work with animals or children or children or
0: animals. You just don't. They, <laughs> they're always going to upstage you. Um,
1: so we end up, you know, where we've sold the idea that, that, that you know, we're going to be in a cage inside a cell and inside the cell outside of the cage are going to be these Rottweilers that are going to be circling the cage like vicious sharks. Well, that got nothing like that because the owners had to come out with their dogs on their leashes inside the cell with them and the dogs were urinating, defecating, and fornicating to the point where we couldn't use them at all in the match or show them on TV. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, it, it was that was great. It was
0: <laughs> awesome. I'm glad you cleared that up because I remember watching that as a fan thing to myself, how the hell is this the same guy who just had, you know, unbelievable brawls with the boss man and and you know Road Dogg and Hardcore Holly, like, how the hell did this? Like, like, that, like there's no
1: way. Yeah, and, and and everybody hold for some reason, and I don't know why, but everybody will, wants to hold me responsible um, for this shit show, <laughs> uh, you know. And Ray, God bless his heart, I loved him dearly. Uh, he never gets mentioned and it's like we could have both went in that ring and set our hair on fire and no one would have cared because they we had literally built the whole the whole thing about the dogs and now the people are watching the dogs not because they're vicious and they're part of the show because they're their own show because they're literally you know pissing and shitting and you know fornicating to the point to where they had to you know the owners had to exchange puppy rights they had to exchange <laughs> phone numbers for the puppy rights backstage you know and it, it's like really i mean quite honestly
0: yeah this is one of the best this is one of the best interviews of all time and i hate that we have to end it on that note <laughs> but uh definitely man thank you so much you know and, and let me thank you as a fan first and foremost for uh just being entertaining you know i i uh, was able to get through high school and and uh college and and um you know I never had to like turn to drugs or anything crazy i mean my my drug was wrestling, I loved wrestling, so that means a lot to me that we had people like you and and mick Foley and and so many others who sacrificed their body like you guys did sacrificed time away from your family, which is something i don't I don't think a lot of people understand and just well, not
1: a sacrifice you know it, it really isn't i mean you make the choice, you make the decision and you live a life that that others don't live. I mean, and, and there are advantages and there are disadvantages and you, you accept that. I've never looked at it as a sacrifice. I know too many of the wrestlers walk around and, you know, they act like it's a cross to bear or something and it's like, look, nobody drove to your house put a gun to your head and asked you to become a professional wrestler. You know, and, and you know, n- nothing in life comes for free. Nothing. You know, you know, everything's going to cost you something. Every decision you make is going to cost you something time money or emotion it's going to cost something um and uh you know but at the same time the trade-offs were that i i you know that time away from my family um gave me opportunities to give my family experiences that they never would have had if i hadn't had that time away um You know, and, and let's be honest, like, and I've had this conversation with other people, um, for years I was ridden with guilt because, you know, we all sold the, Hey, let's have the white picket fence family and dad goes to work and comes home every evening. Um, you know, and I didn't live that life. Um, so people were like, Oh, you're never home. And I had this conversation with some people that worked at AutoZone at one time and, uh, and I said, "Well, how how often do you work?" And they're like, well, we work six days a week." I go six days a week. How how long a day? Oh, twelve hour days. I go, "I'm home more than you." Yeah, you're off one day a week. And I said, "I guarantee you, the two or three, two and a half or one and a half days, I'm home every week." I said, "I actually make the point to make up for the time that I'm away." I said, "You probably because you're so tired." And so, you know, and it's such a routine for you, you get home, eat dinner, you sit and watch TV for two or three hours, you go to bed, you barely speak to anybody, you don't interact with anybody, you don't spend any real time, because you got to shut down from being on on the job for 12 hours, and then you get up the next morning and rinse and repeat till you have one day off, and then you spend that day, you lounging around or, you know, hanging out with yourself, because you're burned out. I said, I don't do that. So, you know, it's not the typical life. Um... But then it gives you—it doesn't give you the same typical advantages either. You know, you get an upside. Like I said, I've—I've I've been able to give my kids experiences and take them places and do things with them and have them see things that they never would have gotten a chance to see and do. So there's a trade-off to it. You know, it's not a sacrifice. Um, you know, it was a decision, and—and and I've never regretted it—not once. Not in 38 years, I've never regretted it. There have been times I get frustrated, and I want to choke somebody until they shit their pants,
0: but I've never regretted it. That's incredible. Thank you so much for everything you said today. You know, it speaks volumes for me. Again, a small business owner like myself here with Key on Sports Media Group. Uh, just to listen to you talk was very, very motivational. Thank you so much. And I uh, just want to let everybody know at home one more time, uh, go ahead, check it out. His book, pick it up on Amazon like I did last night, Self-Help, Life Lessons from the Bizarre Wrestling Career of Al Snow. Al, I want to thank you again and wish you the best of luck moving forward. Hopefully, um, talk to you soon. And also, before I forget, real quick, if there's anybody from OVW that wants to come on, they're more than welcome. Please pass along my information.
1: Yeah, I'd be glad to. I'll uh, I'll refer. You know, have sent some guys your way.
0: Yeah, and we will promote whatever you need.
1: Thank you very much. I really appreciate
0: that. Absolutely. You have a great day, and we'll talk to you soon. You as well. Thank you. So that was L. Snow. Uh, You guys remember him very, very well. Uh, One of the greatest to ever do it. Check that out again. Also check out Ohio Valley Wrestling for Keon Sports. This has been Vince McKee. Everybody have a great day.